Hello, podcast friends. Happy 2021. Oh my God, we came so close in the United States of America. We came right up to the edge. It felt like we were looking into a very deep and bleak abyss that we didn't fall in. We pulled ourselves back and democracy, at least to the extent that we've realized it here at this point, uh, has prevailed. And I gotta say, I am so relieved. I am really thrilled, as many of us are. I've not generally been a person to wave the flag of the U.S. and um, tout our exceptionalism, though I love my country like I love my family. I was one of those kids that resisted saying the Pledge of Allegiance as early as 14 because I was already very aware of what my country was doing in Southeast Asia. Fast forward to this podcast, uh, I'm all too aware that the U.S. spends more on our military than the next 10 countries combined and uses our military might to dominate the world in very much the same way the wealthy have used our police at home to dominate poor Black neighborhoods and keep assets pouring into the hands of a small, mostly white male, few Wall Streeter types, some of them my family members. But today I am truly feeling more patriotic and proud of my country like never before. It feels like we've just gone through a hazing, a reckoning, and perhaps Donald Trump has done us a favor to wake us up. Like the saying goes, it takes a lot of pounding to create a good bar of steel. I read a book a long while back called The People of the Lie by M. Scott Peck that keeps coming to mind. Uh, he's the same guy who wrote uh, The Road Less Traveled, if you remember it. The premise of the book is that lies are the core of human evil. Seeing ourselves clearly as a person, as a country, as a world, is the beginning of healing and real positive change. As we say in the Gestalt world, awareness works. The paradox is that true change happens only by seeing the, the fullness of what is. A few weeks back, when the runoff elections in the state of Georgia tipped the balance in the U.S. Senate to Democratic, I tweeted this. I am so deeply moved by what has just happened in Georgia. Thank you, Stacey Abrams. Change Georgia. Change the country. Change the world. And bing, I immediately got a like from a young woman in Asia who is an activist for democracy in her own country. I just love that connectedness. Though I know it can work against us, it's pretty amazing uh, how much we can be talking to each other. After living with the Trump administration for the last four years that used bullying and the fantasy of a lost white Christian and patriarchal America, it was so super moving to see, in the words of one of my friends, a glorious display of inclusivity, including all the raw feminine power on display, how bright and radiant and knowing that that was brought about in part by the activism of so many of us, of which I'm proud to be a part. Beginning on January 21st, 2017, when women with our pussy hats on marched on Washington in the largest single day protest in American history and dwarfed the Trump inauguration numbers of the previous day. So I'm feeling optimistic, but there is so much to do and the climate clock is ticking. The piece of it that I have chosen is focusing on empowering women by building our negotiation capacity 
and putting a spotlight on the use of more collaborative and yes, feminine processes to build common ground in complex systems. One can be a neutral facilitator that brings very polarized groups, even warring factions together to build common ground. I have done it and I have seen it. But so many of our world governments, including my own, are all still sort of anachronistic, still sort of steeped in win-lose adversarial debate, egged on by a media that leads with what bleeds. As a student and practitioner of collaborative process, I know we can make better use of the advanced processes we know now work to build consensus and common ground. Power over versus power with, win-lose versus win-win, both of these have very big gender implications. On the podcast front, I've been frustrated, I gotta say, with how slow I am to get episodes out. There are so many I would like to do, so many cool people to interview, but like so many solo socialpreneurs like myself, there's the issue of bandwidth and making a living. This fall, I put together a six-week virtual course called Women Negotiation and Power, which was thrilling. Uh, I will launch an even better version of that course in March, so stay tuned and enroll or send people my way if you like. I'm also super excited by the growing audience of women whose stories and struggles I'm hearing either through my online courses or individual or group coaching. So thank you, and I'm here to serve you and make the best content I can for women around negotiation and for the process methods showcased in this podcast. Getting gender right is delicate, just like democracy. Patriarchy tends to cut humans in half and say that men can be this way and women can be that. What is happening is people are becoming more fully human and being allowed to develop themselves fully, not just according to gender roles, and also to be fully woman and not have that be devalued in any way. This is exciting and this will create a more peaceful world, I think. As Carol Gilligan so aptly said, feminism is the movement to free democracy from patriarchy. We have a lot of work to do because honestly, the model of so many things is still fundamentally the man supported by the woman. It's gonna be weird, but it's gonna happen in the US soon enough when a woman becomes our next president with or without an intimate partner standing beside her. It's gonna feel uncomfortable and probably unnatural to many because it is uncharted territory. So how did we get to this moment in time to all those colorful flags and empowered women and people on the Capitol steps of the US, a young black woman, a descendant of slaves delivering the inaugural poem and declaring her unabashed desire to be president of the US someday? I think it has come from untangling stories, narratives we have been told that are untrue. I know for me, that has been a good piece of the work I have done to keep growing as a human. Seeing ourselves clearly versus the stories we have made up, truth versus lies or fictions, like that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, that women came from the rib of Adam, that my brother was more valuable than I was from the moment of birth. These are all untruths, but powerful narratives that have big consequences. So in part B of Herstory, Rabia continues to try to unpack our human history, Herstory, from the perspective of women. Here are some of my favorite frames. The first you heard in part A, but she repeats it here. 
that the basic format for a human being is female. The X chromosome has about 1,000 genetic messages in it. The Y chromosome has 50. As Rabia continues, that's true of other species as well. The female was here first. Maleness developed over time, and it serves to create great diversity. Our species probably would not have made it this far if males hadn't begun to add their genetic pool in the way that they have. So we're both necessary, we're both of value, but most of the myths are incorrect. We weren't made out of the rib of Adam, and it's amazing how tenacious those stories are. And while they might seem like a joke to some of us, they totally influence substantial parts of our population. Another frame, that even though we don't want gender to be determinative of what our options are in life, there are differences in our bodies and evolution that impact our experience. For instance, she highlights, uh, girls at birth have 10 to 30% more cells in the corpus callosum than males have. That spot that links the left and right side of the brain and makes it easier generally for women to talk or write feelings that women have more rods and men have more cones, so we literally do see the world differently, that how the way our pelvis has evolved um, has shaped our need and desire for collaboration as women. I'm gonna let you listen to check this out more. It's pretty interesting and uh, differentiates us from what happened with Cro-Magnon man and woman. Aggression is wired in males of all species. Uh, Rabia gives some great examples of how the females of other species keep this in check and calls on women to step into our extraordinary power to better manage male violence, whether it be intimate, domestic, or global. By way of example of how resilient we have been, Rabia describes the incredibly successful period of about 70,000 years that we girls with our daughters and our mothers and grandmothers and of course our male brethren walked the earth, surviving two ice ages. As she emphasizes what we are capable of, what our grandmothers went through to get us here. I gotta say when I was listening to this, it, it gives me some hope. Well, I, I like city, I love cities. In 1996, the same year that our planet became more urban than rural, I chose with my then husband, Peter, to move out of New York City and raise our kids 50 miles north in a more rural place. We did this in spite of the relative whiteness, uh, which neither of us were a big fan of, um, but it felt important to have our kids understand the natural world, which was then under such deep assault already. Um, they do, both of them, which is both great and a constant heartache, because if you're watching, you know that the earth is changing fast before our eyes. And my little piece of the planet, the pond I live on, has not frozen for the last two winters. There is virtually no snow. There is a new kind of moss growing on rocks everywhere. There are blowdowns everywhere throughout the woods because of the severity of the storms. I often feel uh, pretty despairing about this because while I think we are and can keep improving on racial, gender, and economic justice, we may not be able to turn back the clock on what we have done to the planet. It seems ironic that as the fierce mother that I have been, that I put so much effort into creating a good life for my kids, only to see the earth on which they depend dying beneath their feet. I know that's heavy. 
Um, but when I listen to Rabia, um, how much we have gone through as a species, the 70,000 years that she talks about in this episode compared to that puny 10,000 years that we tend to learn about in our history, it makes me more hopeful for all of our grandchildren. So a few other frames. She describes in some great detail about the periods of the goddess in this episode. The goddess cultures, some of them were highly sexual. Spirituality and sexuality for a couple of thousand years seemed to go together everywhere from Turkey to Egypt. She says, you see it in paintings and in architecture. So it wasn't only the goddess that the patriarchy wanted to get rid of. It was sexuality, no kidding. She talks in this episode about the emergence of patriarchy, gaining force through imagined orders, hierarchies, narratives, stories. The time that women started becoming the property of men. And the most important thing about owning a woman is that she had to be chaste because a man's honor was dependent on a woman's behavior. If she had sex, he was dishonored. There was now no honor for women. Things had changed. So honor became something that men had that was their only thing. Bravery was measured by going to war and wearing armor and killing a lot of other men, not bravery in the pregnancy of delivering a beautiful baby, which had been for thousands of years from Spain to Indonesia. She goes on to talk about the first three commandments of the Bible that say what no other God has ever said. I am God. I am the Lord thy God. You shall have no other gods but me. This is not how humans developed spiritually, she says. This is a real break in human consciousness. She goes on to describe that you cannot take my name in vain. Okay, you can't talk about God unless you're really worshiping him. She describes a faraway God that he dips into human affairs, but is pretty far away. He's all male. And everything that comes after the Ten Commandments, a quarter of the stories are about how women should be treated and behave. And she says the Hammurabi Code, it's the same. One third to one half is about how to deal with women who have sex, who won't clean your house, who talk back. I remember that being also referred to in what the Constitution means to me, an amazing play, which I recommend to you. So I encourage you to listen to this episode. There is so much insight and will make you rethink many of the assumptions we make about how we got to this moment we live today. So it's a great pleasure to bring Ravia Roberts back to you again. I am uh, totally impressed <laughs> that you all came out in what turned into be an icy cold rain to hear about our ancestors. I will say now, it's one of my favorite classes that we're gonna do. It's what I think is the most exciting period in human history. And the most important one in women's history is going to be the, the focus of the time that we all went through called the Neolithic. I know that sounds like it's ancient, but once you <laughs> once you start studying things like neuroscience and how long it takes the brain to develop, or you begin to uh, understand that pathways are laid down a long time ago that uh, still have a great influence on us, and that will be that will be one of the things 
for that I'll talk about because it's a uh, it's a little scary. It's a little scary about uh, what happened during this period overall. I, I also began last time with a um, with a couple of um, explanations. Number one, this is a really pro women forward class course. That's the point of it. The Women's Wisdom School is uh, it's not about dissing men. It's very much about women forward, though. And there are a lot of people, men and women, who once you do that, feel that you're dissing men. I mean, so watch how it sounds if I say something implying that uh, females have developed in order to do something that men have not developed to do very easily. Or that historically we see that men are the warriors and the ones who start war and more aggressive and um, more involved in hierarchy. It's, uh, it's not to diss them, but it is to say they've colored our lives with really some of the negative side of who they are. So let's begin. I've been, I have been studying this for about 40, 45 years, and I have been meeting with women around the world through my environmental work. So I'm just saying that to give you some sense that I got street creds with what we're going to talk about. If men feel bad about what's been said, and they're feeling bad or they're feeling angry, women almost naturally feel it's their fault. And there's something they should do to make things better for how men are feeling and, and what, they're, what they're doing, especially if we think it's something we said. I mean, you'll notice if you've said something and your partner or your husband or your friend gets a little grumpy about it, you go back and say, look, I didn't really mean. In this class, we're going to try to really mean <laughs> what we say. And I will be looking um, at the strong parts of women. Um, we'll be sure to point to our, our negative ones as well. But this is a time when women need all the self-confidence we can, we can pull together. We need a woman's movement. I think there's one building. I think there's a third wave, really, of the women's movement is building. But a lot of women, especially young women, don't know that. And if they hear it, they don't like the idea. Oh, that's feminism. What's wrong with feminism? Well, it kind of hates males. I am one that's not the defining feature of being a feminist. Um, just like hating males wasn't the defining feature of being a suffragette. I mean, it, to be a feminist, for me, is to look at the structural ways in which um, the patriarchy suppresses women, defines us according to their, their values. A lot of other things. That's, that's not it. It's just trying to say that we'll be looking at a lot of archaeology and history. And why is it important? Because it shows who we are, what our grandmothers were, what we've done when things have been dramatically different from this time. Now, there's no going back to foraging in the forest for our food, but we have to go forward out of this. We are in the patriarchy. 
I say that to my husband and he says, no, come on, you're an American woman. You're <laughs> well, it's not a level playing field for any of us. And it's even less so for the women of color, for poor women, for women in other parts of the world. It's not a level playing field and it's tilting in the wrong direction right now. It's become uh, becoming abusive again. And if we get used to that, or we allow that to happen without our personal voice, but also stepping out, and women are. So that's, that's the good news. This isn't the only thing happening. These are happening all over the country, all over the world. Women are coming together for politics, for education, for health care. And this particular course is to give you a sense of who we've been through the ages. But in the fall, we'll move into different things like women in politics and economics and things. But these first classes are, uh, how did we get here? The, the last class looked at the very beginnings of life. That we talked about um, the early uh, sex cells, chromosomes being XX and the XY, this like birth defect. Um, creating males basically by suppressing some aspects of becoming a female. That's the, that's the main thing the androgen and the first hormones do in the womb is suppress the normal development to becoming a female. And there are also then other hormones and chemicals come that release um, testosterone and of androgen and a variety of hormones and chemicals that men need in their development and uh, that make them different. I guess the important thing for that class, well, a couple of them were, is that the basic format for a human being is female. The X chromosome has about a thousand uh, genetic messages in it. The Y chromosome has 50. I mean, so that it, it's true of um, other species as well. We were here first. Uh, maleness developed over time, and it serves to create great diversity. The species would probably not have made it this far if males hadn't uh, begun to add their genetic pool in the way that it has. So we're both necessary. We're both of value. Um, but most of the myths are incorrect. We weren't made out of the rib of Adam. Um, and it's amazing how tenacious those stories are. <laughs> and while they might seem like a joke to some of us, they totally influence substantial parts of our population. And we're going to look soon at how uh, basic creation myths and of stories evolved over a period of 10 years till we get to Eve. Kind of what, what were the stories being told by cultures for a long time that influenced the way their society was organized? So let's go back a little bit to the, to the earlier years before we come to this period of time. This will be the, this will be the time we'll be spending much of our energy with. But before that, when we were still uh, evolving into humans, in the last class, I didn't get to talk about how the brain differences evolved between males and females. 
and how that happened over millions of years, over hundreds of thousands of years, because of the different survival tasks that males and females needed. Uh, so the first part of the brain that the human being develops is what now is called the right lobe. But it was for a long, long time the only lobe. I mean, the right brain was the beginning. And it, it was about, wasn't about words. It was about feelings. It was about being able to see things all at once. Uh, it was about kind of the gestalt feeling of knowing what's going on. That was a survival thing that as humans we needed. We needed to be able to take in the whole story and be safe somehow, right? So, and also it's now what develops music. Think of it as the, a lot of people do, the emotional, artistic, uh, holistic part of how we think and see and behave. Over time, because of who we are and what all the things we were learning, like speaking, first with gesturing, then speaking, which was taught between mother and infant, as we developed that, we developed what is now called the left lobe. And that part of the brain is um, about linear thinking. You know, it's about seeing one thing at a time and then coming to meaning. Whereas the right brain is a gestalt and the meaning is an all at once experience. So this linearity over time has allowed us to speak and write and uh, create abstract symbols, do math. It's, it's really enhanced our, our capacities. Between the two is something called the, what is it called? Corpus callosum. Corpus callosum. <laughs> Thank you. And it, uh, it's a real rich area with a lot of neurons and uh, neural pathways in there. And uh, girls at birth have 10 to 30% more cells in there than males have. Now, huh? No, between the right and the left. Corpus callosum, it links the two in our life. And females are born with the tendency to have an easier linkage there. It's why it's easier for us to talk or write feelings. Now, society can affect that almost totally. I mean, you can train a, a boy, you can encourage a boy to begin to express his feelings. But you do have to do that. Just like you may have to encourage a girl to pay more attention to math or whatever. I mean, we can affect a lot, but often our society doesn't. We've kind of fallen into these complementary and sometimes oppositional gender roles. So along with the brain, our hands were developing, our heels were getting hard so we could walk. We came down out of the trees and um, our brain was getting bigger. We talked about this at the last course. The human brain has grown more than any other mammal. We don't know about whales and elephants, but, <laughs> but we're, we're supposed to be the ones with the big brain. And at one point, at some point, the human brain was getting, the skull was getting so big to hold it, it had trouble coming out the pelvis. 
and females were dying in, in birth in an uh, unacceptable way for evolution. Um, so actually the Neanderthals had a real problem with this, and so did the Cro-Magnons. And some people think it's one of the reasons the Cro-Magnons didn't continue on because of the size of the skull of their infants trying to get out. You know, this all changed once we started to walk. It, it just couldn't keep getting bigger. Anyway, so along with the development of the brain, one of the most important things for human development was our eyes, because we lost the strength of our nose and we were not on the ground anymore. Um, so our strongest sense became the eyes. And the eyes developed with two kinds of uh, cells in them. Uh, rods is one that's all over the retina, and it basically takes in all the light. It's a great cell that enables us to see uh, in a big sense. Uh, when, when they're active, when those cells are activated, the whole body reacts in a kind of contemplative way. I think meditation is often about uh, a certain focus in the eyes that allows the jaw to relax and a uh, number of things happen in the body and it's contemplative. We also have cones in our eyes and they're right in the center. Their job is to see at a far distance something small. It's like seeing out of a, through a telescope or a lens. It's piercing, it's contracted, um, it's very good for hunting, <laughs> among other things. But it's, you know, when we're really concentrating on something, if we're reading or writing, we're concentrating on, on letters marching across a page, we're using the cone cells in our eyes. And that that evolves into an experience of what we call concentration. So it's important to know those because women have more cones and men have more rods. No, women have more rods and men have more cones. So we literally do see the world differently. I mean, when you feel like that's what's happening, it really is in, in a certain way. <laughs> because the brain and we were learning so much as a species and the, we could only have such a brain size in order to get out of our wounds to, you know, to deliver a baby. A lot of the neural pathways in the human development had to be put in later after the infant was outside our uterus, our womb. That's how evolution worked out the problem, the head. <laughs> the head woman problem was by making a significant part of our development happen outside, taking about at the first two years. And that, of course, puts a lot of more pressure on women. In addition to the food gathering and the pregnancy and the nursing, we're now really responsible for a large part of the child's development. What we've come to call that is culture. You know, the development that happens to an infant outside for the first couple of years, you know, when it's, it's first born, is a kind of cultural imprint. Actually, new neural pathways are imprinted. 
So uh, this is all we've heard. If a baby doesn't get that, and the mother is the usual one who delivers that, and a lot of it is delivered non-verbally uh, through the face. I won't go into that either. But there's a wonderful, a uh, lot of learning about how women's facial expressions and expressions of uh, love and kindness, how much that puts in, how much that imprints our babies. So, of course, all those cultures who love and welcome their sons more than their daughters are infecting the intellectual development of their children. I mean, it's kind of interesting to me that what regulated the intellectual development of the human species was the side of our pelvis. I mean, so women played the role a lot of, of uh, our consciousness of, of who we could be. So this was all to make the case that a lot happens early on. And a lot happened that later influenced how we women developed, because once we had to take care of a baby so much more, we needed to be taken care of so much more. We needed more help. And that was the evolutionary trigger for communication with other women, for friendship, for um, both verbal and nonverbal expressions of affection and cooperation. This is something that male and female <laughs> scientists agree on, uh, that, that women's need for social support, some say even created the longevity of the grandmother, but it's certainly made uh, the cooperative, collaborative possibilities between women uh, different from what men had. Now, men had to learn to collaborate, too, when they were going off to hunt a woolly mammoth, which wasn't very often, given how it's often talked about. But when they, <laughs> when they did go off and hunt it, they had to have a they had to have a collaborative capacity. And you'll see that today, like house building or, you know, barn raising or football games or all kinds of physical uh, sports and activities. It's easy, easier for men to come together and feel comfortable. Uh, you know, they pat each other's butt. They feel more comfortable with each other. So they, too, learned cooperation. Somewhat different, but they also learned to be generous. They had to bring the meat home to the camp. And our species, like others, ate it where they found it. And females hunted with males. And, but now women, pregnant women couldn't. And males had to learn to bring it back. So I just want that to go down in history so they don't think I'm only saying bad things about men. <laughs> that, uh, that there's a lot that men have that, quite honestly, the patriarchal structures have suppressed. And I've talked a lot about this with good, wonderful men who they get, they are as repressed, suppressed in their opportunities by the patriarchy as, as women often are. I mean, this system serves only a few. It's a system designed to serve only a few. That's what makes, and it's not masculinity. Masculinity is a gender term that implies all kinds of things and that are different from one culture to another, just as femininity, the feminine does. But the patriarchal is a kind of out of control series of masculine tendencies that got put in place 
talk about later. They got put in place ooh, somewhere around here for reasons we'll look at, because one of the most important things that happened in our history has been the arising of what a lot of people call the patriarchy. So just one more comment about our early, in our early development. Because males were the ones who fought for meat, which only was about 20% of the diet of hunters gatherers. Most was most of them were gatherers. That's where the nutrition came from. But what men did brought in important protein that helped the development of the human brain as we as we went along. And having to do that, and also having to compete for access to uh, females. And this can be studied in all all animals. The, the need that males have to compete and be aggressive to get access to a female. Because females aren't always willing. And that's true for humans. Even though we became able to have sex at any time in the month, like a lot of what male anthropologists say, so women are available uh, the month around. And I thought, well, you know, it's more, you know, women are possible. Months around. I mean, it's, it's, we didn't do this to be more available to men. We did this actually to not have too many babies. So the aggression is wired in, and every species and every culture has found ways to manage this aspect of maleness. Elephants are basically mother and child, female and child herds. And uh, if one of them is in estrus, which doesn't happen very often, um, somehow the signal gets to what is a group of males. The male comes. All the other females are there. It's really excited, you know. And they get it on. And it's true. They're all going like this. And there's tears running down their eyes for emotion. I mean, it's really a happy event. <laughs> then they happily escort the male right out of the, out of the herd. <laughs> I mean, he's not part. Thank you very much. He's not part. <laughs> Whales are similar. Um, insects are very similar. Some insects eat the male after. <laughs> so so there is a there has been a need to figure out how to get the great things males offer without being burdened by the natural aggression and uh, competition and violence that they bring. So we've structured it the way you're living right now, which is not very well. I mean, considering the amount of domestic violence and intimate violence there is, I would say we're not managing the males very well at all. Other wars. I mean, I feel we have a responsibility to get this together, get it, get it to be better. Not to get rid of males, but to work with males to um, bring us into a partnership role. So for about, after we're all developed, for about uh, 70 to 100,000 years, we've come out of Africa. Uh, we go everywhere. We go to Australia and Indonesia, and we don't go into North America yet, but go to, we go to Russia, I mean, and we're walking. Um, for a long time, we're walking without fire, controlled fire. Um, then we manage that. But we are in different kind of sized tribes. We're in, 
you know, kinship groups of maybe 15 or 20. We're in larger groups, they say, from skeletons they find of about 30. That's about as big as a tribe that needs to walk every day uh, can do. And from what archaeology can find from digs and collecting, this was not warlike periods. There's not evidence of war. There's evidence of fighting. You know, you found, found a head batched in or something like that. I mean, so I guess this small kinship group doesn't always get along. Um, but there, there isn't a lot of war. There's not much to fight over. You know, it's a, it's a big planet, and people are moving either daily or seasonally. But they, they, they've got enough room. And they often come together for what it looks like to change, exchange females. So that would be, make sense for reproductive diversity. Uh, but it was an incredibly successful time. And I mean, for, we managed this for a minimum of 70,000 years, hmm. living this way, wow. Wow. growing this way, settling the planet this way, two ice ages in there. It just what we're capable of, what we're capable of, and what our grandmothers went through to get us here. Pretty healthy diet, they say, though nobody got really plump on it. It was a relatively healthy diet, which allowed the immune system to develop. And that's how we girls were for a long time with our daughters and our, our mothers. We walked the, we walked the earth. Sometime around here, in this area, which has always been called the Fertile Crescent. Now, they might have been doing it somewhere else. I, I thought of this driving over here. Everything I'm talking about is pretty much what went on here from Turkey down the coast to the Sinai and in this Fertile Crescent and in, down through Egypt. And that doesn't mean that was the only place in which slowly civilization was developing. It's just where money was to do the digs, I think. <laughs> you know, the American, I, I was just thinking that the Americans and the Europeans put money to do archaeological yeah. work yeah. in here. I don't, we don't know what's over in China. Yeah. I know that Indonesia had settlements, so this might have been going on everywhere. This happens to be our lineage. This is the development of Western, so-called Western civilization. Took place in this part of the world. This was where the Bible was written. Over here is where the, the Greek Iliad and Odyssey um, began to develop. And then, of course, the Roman Empire. But all over in here, too, there are... Um, people are coming together. Let's just make it simple. They... Uh, they don't know why. They, they say, because all the reasons that have been given to us are, are questionable. The usual reason is um, it was easier. And so after 70,000 years, deciding that doing this was easier might be questionable. I mean, we have, during that 70,000 years, stopped at times, certainly along coastlines, um, one of the theories is that uh, the development in here, and here from Turkey on down, 
the development in there was because that after the end of the last ice age with hunters and gatherers, oh, that's a nice story too, hunters and gatherers. Somewhere along the last decade, um, archaeologists and anthropologists found out that it was really gatherers who were supplying the majority of the calories that kept a tribe alive. Males were essential, as I said, with the, the periodic big animal. Um, so some women started calling them uh, gatherers and hunters. <laughs> and it didn't hold. I mean, it didn't hold. So the males, the men in the profession said, well, let's call them foragers. And, and talk about men, having that be men and women. But it was cute. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember when we, when we fought to say that men did not mean human. Remember, all men were supposed to be humans, and they also said, no, it doesn't sound right, we can't write like that. I remember that. So this was, these little arguments are going on everywhere. And very much so in uh, archaeology right now, because uh, the finds don't fit the stories we've all made. You know, they keep discovering new tells, new uh, places that are older than we thought, and they disrupt the, the stories. It doesn't look like the foragers are quite as primitive as we thought they were, at least the ones that, uh, that we're finding out about ones that lived along sea coasts. Um, the biggest uh, indication that there was more to gatherers and hunters than we thought was a temple recently, a couple of years, last couple of years, found here in, in Turkey. This is a huge project uh, with 16-foot um, stone pillars weighing seven tons, um, different levels, of meeting places. I mean, they're just unpacking it now that looks like it developed over time. It would have taken maybe 10,000 people from different tribes at that time to work together to build something like this. We have no idea how they could have done that with our understanding of what they are. And it's possible, since this is the first thing we found, it's possible other things came before agriculture. You know, maybe that, that was a spiritual, ideological, important meeting place, and agriculture, which is nearby, sedentary, uh, planted uh, wheat, got planted for people to be able to build that. I mean, so there's a whole lot we've been making up for a fairly long time, uh, and a lot of it is, as we see, has been specifically about... Uh, suppressing women. So, you know, kind of that's where we where we were. Remember, that's a very small part of the planet, but our whole world is now based on the stories that came out of there. Um, and, you know, you have to search for Inca and Aztec and other cultural developments in China, which were and existed, but this is our world. So, about this time, um, this is the first and the largest town we found of, of us uh, people coming together and deciding to settle together. Um, somewhere in here, after a thousand or two thousand years, this whole area 
um, got small towns, and then some larger cities, and then eventually empires. But in the early years, they were, you know, towns of between 7,000 and 30,000 people eating wheat and barley that had been planted and was deliberately harvested. You couldn't do that on the move because those kind of grains need to be um, ground down and, and cooked and winnowed. And um, so that's what began to happen. So women's work increased noticeably when we settled down. For one thing, we're not moving along, and so we can have one baby a year. We're not nursing. What used to be, you were on the walk, you were nursing for two, maybe sometimes three years um, before you would get pregnant and have another child. So here you could feed your babies on, on gruel and uh, have one child a year. <laughs> along with that, is babies began to die. One out of three, they estimate from graves that they found, of little children before the age of five seem to have died in these early agricultural towns. Uh, women also, for the first time in history, it, it goes back, women also began to die earlier than men. Usually males die earlier in all age groups. But around this time, women died earlier. We had a baby every year, they're doing the work in the fields, they're tending the home, which people slowly over time became fairly obsessive about. Now you lived in your home, you had your plot, you had your babies who were going to help you in the field, but the more babies, the more fields you had to plant. I mean, so that agriculture really began to own people. I mean, we've been sold the story about it, about the great agricultural revolution that made civilization possible. And there are a lot of books coming out now with the same information that I'm finding. It was a disaster. These towns were disease um, vectors, small towns living cramply close together. People's immune systems went down with just eating wheat porridge instead of the more than a hundred kinds of uh, vegetables and growth and things that they, they used to eat. So they had, they had porridge and they had animals they tended, so cows and sheep. But it was not a healthy time. A woman in Jericho at 75 or 7,000 BC was far less happy, healthy, powerful than she would have been a thousand years before that. This began a terrible descent for women, but it, it begins here. It hasn't gotten to its worst. From what we know, from, from all I know, it's primarily environmental pressures on females got worse. I don't know what was going on culturally at that time. We do suspect, uh, I agree, that because hunting big animals went away, that males lost a certain transcendence they had in uh, going out and getting the big animal and, and bringing it back. And you see that from reading stories about villages, historical villages still in Africa, where there is a hunting gathering tendency. Those are mostly gone, but it was a big deal. The man had a real place and it used his, his energy and might have used up his tendency to, to argue or 
anyway, we won't go there. But it was hard on men, too. So after this started, and there was agriculture growing wheat all along here, big towns there are now getting to be uh, large towns with a lot of building, stone work, and a lot of crafts, beautiful pottery. It's developing that early, and it continues to develop. But the findings of archaeology begin to say that during that time, everywhere are statues of female, often in a position of giving birth or being pregnant. or uh, So there was a kind of mother goddess, and there was a, uh, often a very sexual female um, and stories. And this was, this was a real pro-woman time. We are sure of that now. And it's amazing how it is not all through here. It is not talked about. I mean, this latest book that came out a couple of years ago called Species that told the history and everybody was all excited about it had a half of one chapter about females and women. <laughs> you know, as if everything else was assumed we were part of what was going on and no mention, well, a reference to this. And they always tend to call it a fertility cult. Um, you know, these small statues and the big statues and there were temples and there's paintings on the wall showing women bringing food, dancing with men. I mean, it was, some of these were just extraordinary from what we can see. There were fights, no big wars. And that's very hard for male archaeologists to accept that there was a multi-thousand year period when there were no big wars evident. According to some anthropologists, it was a partnership political situation. I don't know. It wasn't a matri matriarchy. People seem very clear about that. It wasn't as if females were doing something like what the patriarchy is doing now. There was never a time where females had that kind of leadership or authority. They were, however, the head of religions, and uh, at the same time, all of these goddess cultures were highly sexual. It was uh, hard to talk. The spirituality and sexuality for a couple thousand years seemed to go together uh, everywhere from Turkey to Egypt. You see it in paintings and in architecture and the texts that begin to come out in about 4,000. So it, it wasn't only the goddess that the patriarchy wanted to get rid of. It was sexuality. It was how prominent, prevalent, happy it seemed to be. I don't know much, and I haven't studied how marriages were and, and what they did then. What's important is that this really existed. This is not the illusion of a few feminist archaeologists. For thousands of years in different places, women were at least equal and were probably more prominent in things like religion and uh, food and the arts. So, you know, the men were more prominent probably in politics. Old men especially began to get more recognition. That's what, uh, what I read is that elder men kind of came into their own when the hunting when the hunting stopped. But what we also got at this time that was very masculine was hierarchy. 
important to understand hierarchy. It did come with uh, being settled, collecting food, storing it, building your field. Eventually, your town's going to need some irrigation. So who's going to put up the money for that? Who's going to decide about that? Okay, there's a little hierarchy right there. And then it gets to be, okay, we who are making these decisions are going to tax you, peasants, um, slaves, farmers, to help support um, the buildings and the, like I said, irrigation and the things that we need. So all of the development of what we call civilization, all of the beautiful things we've seen both in Egypt and throughout Mesopotamia, resulted because there had to be hierarchy. Uh, someone had to decide what to do. It wasn't able to be, at least this is what men said, it wasn't able to continue with the kind of collaborative work that small tribes could do. Now, it didn't happen in some of the female forward cultures. I mean, the Minoan culture that in Crete was the last goddess culture was huge for its time, had a lot of stratification, and it wasn't hierarchy. It was uh, shared alliances doing different things. That seems to be really hard uh, for some people to imagine, that we could have a complex society based on working shared alliances. In fact, almost every book I've read said, with complexity, you have to have hierarchy. Um, We've not tried it much the other way, but when environmentalists talk about wanting to have regional, bioregional politics to go with the needs of the land and develop business, you know, it's the same thing. Can we do something collective on a more manageable scale? Well, then you can't have the Museum of Art. You won't have operas. You might not have a symphony that can't pull enough money together out of the farmers or the workers to support those things when we're that small, when we're bioregional instead of <coughs> national. Or, so it's basically something we have to talk out is <laughs> where I come to with it. And that there, there can be very many different models. But if women are going to go forward, we're going to have to address the question of what role men best serve, how we can work together, men and women, and how we can organize some of the beautiful things that humans do without oppressing uh, peasants or, I'm trying to think of my father, working in steel plants or, you know, the, the small farmers in, in uh, South America. I mean, we have a lot of people at the bottom still supporting, now we really recognize it, a small group at the top. And when that group gets smaller and smaller, well, that's what happened in Rome, but that's what begins to break down some of the cultures. Either that or they become more violent and they have more slaves and, they, and it becomes an incredibly violent patriarchal system based on controlling a large part of the population. We wouldn't have high, I mean, how would we do these kind of complex organization when our brain isn't wired for it in, in the same way that it's been wired for smaller tribal 
communities. And I think it's these imagined hierarchies. I mean, they're not real. It's not that somebody's really that much better and deserves that much more than somebody else. I mean, money isn't, or status, or higher, I mean, yes, some people do things better than others, but that's not the same as a kind of um, built hierarchy. They're imagined orders. And that's how we created civilization, by making up imagined orders and saying they were true. The only way to have an imagined order is to say, it has to be this way. God made it this way. Or, you know, something transcendent is forcing me to treat you like a slave. Uh, I mean, even 1776 and what the white males decided uh, would build America was based on an imagined order of status. And, okay, I'm going to change gear because I want to... Uh, I'm going to tell some stories and then have some questions. There's a lot more. There's a lot more to say. I want it. It's important. We will do it next time to talk about what writing and reading did to the human brain and how it it became one of the things that really has held the feminine down by building up the neurological pathways of the left brain. Uh, de-emphasizing images. Remember how the Old Testament said no gods, no images? I mean, it was really about wiping out the goddess, suppressing all images, and what's true is what's written, these marks on these tablets. I mean, that's, that's God now. That's another talk. I want, to, <laughs> I, want to, I want to do something very quickly and tell us some stories. The, the leading myth that we know about 4,500 that we've actually found written on tablets in cuneiform. Uh, it's just stunning. Um, it has been translated. It's, it's awesome. And it, I don't want to say ruled, but it's an expression of the cultural priorities of that society, in, in Sumerian society. Um, one of the lead people is Inanna, She's the goddess. She's the queen of heaven and earth. And I've written about her in, in the past, about her, some of her different exploits. Uh, one of them that's relevant here is a whole several se long section where she's protesting, not wanting to marry the herder, the shepherd. That's the people who are coming in from here. They brought horses, and they're more violent, and they've come down here, and they've begun to take over the agricultural people and culture. And it, it's begun fighting, and it, it contributes to the development of war. What's called the Kurgans coming down from the Russian steppes because they tamed the horse. And uh, they they're, were far more primitive than these cultures. And... Uh, several archaeologists believe that this they are what created the, the masculine need to fight, you know, that set up that so we could have a warrior class. But Inanna is saying, I don't want to marry him. She smells. I mean, she, uh, they're, they're just very, I want to marry the farmer. 
I mean, that's written in the songs that they did kind of like operas, I think, uh, telling the story. Um, she was queen of heaven and earth, and her father was the sun, and her brother was the moon, and, you know, so she had a lot of power in that for a long time, for almost over 2,000 years, she was God, like we have God, right? But it wasn't talked about that way. It was part of a pantheon that she kind of ruled. And it was very sexual. Who will plow my vulva? Who will, you know, these things. Hmm. It was beautiful. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not offended by that, mm -hmm. it was far out female. Mm -hmm. um, and so the culture must have been far out female. 200 years, uh, 2,000 years later, sometime if you, we want, we can just do a class on all these myths, mm -hmm. the stories of what they tell us about our humanity are actually very sophisticated. You know, you'd think they were written by a therapist <laughs> um, in what they understand about the human condition. So what came, the same was true in Egypt, great feminine. I mean, one of the more female, pro-female cultures uh, that existed anywhere in the world at that time. Um, I, I didn't study on that. I studied <laughs> the others. But about 2,000 years later, so that's about from now to the Greeks for us, the main Sumerian myth was about Tiamat. Tiamat. She was the mother goddess, T-I-A-M-E-T. And the story I'm picking out was the same thing. It was written on, I want to say thousands, but it sounds like a, hundreds of tablets had these. Tiamat was a mother goddess, and in this one story, she's being bothered by a bunch of young male gods, right? The boys are being a pain. And uh, she, at first, she just tells them to go away. Then she gets annoyed. Then one kind of leader among the boys says, look, if I get rid of her, uh, can I be the chief of all of you? That's Marduk. Have you ever studied myths? The Tiamat Marduk one is, is the most horrendous myth in any religious thing we've ever found in the, on Earth. <laughs> Real. It really is. But so the... The boys say, no, we don't want to mess with Tiamat. She's the mother goddess. Um, but Marduk says, okay, I will. Now, Tiamat, at this point, has a big round belly. And it's not clear from the translations that I've read whether she's pregnant or giving birth or just has a big round belly. Not clear. But Marduk goes up inside her belly and begins to create whirlwinds, because he is the boy god of the wind, begins to create seven whirlwinds in her belly. And she's really annoyed, and has the power, and throws him out. They then go kill her husband, Epsu, and then she's really mad. And when they come back again to annoy her, Marduk says, this time, and he goes back up into the belly, and he distracts her with, uh, again, wind games. He distracts her, and while she's distracted, trying to, he shoots an arrow into her heart, 
and kills her. So the great mother goddess is dead. When he comes out to the other boys, he says, okay, now am I the chief? And they say, yes. And then he decides to create the earth, and he creates the earth by cutting up the mother's body. He cuts off her breast to make uh, mountain ranges. He pierces her eyes to make the Tigris and Euphrates River. He cuts her abdomen off to support the sky. Uh, but he, sim he simply takes, cuts her up. Uh, it's really macabre. And there was nothing before that. There was nothing like it. That's what was not being said. So in that 2,000 years, there's been a big transformation. And not only have men taken a new role, they're angry. And that's what I found for the next several thousand years, that it's not just that males want more power, which is what my husband said. I said, why, is, why do you think this is going on? He said, well, obviously the women took over too much and the men wanted to get power back. I know well, that's something. That, that's how he would say it. Somehow the women did the wrong thing and, and the men wanted to rise back to power. There's a lot of reasons, including the need for the warrior model. There's a lot of reasons why men might have become more powerful for the culture, for the imperial cultures, but they become mean. The stories are uh, mean. The laws are mean. If a man rapes someone else's wife, he has to pay her husband 50 shekels. You know, nothing done about her. I mean, women at this time in history are property. They are the property of men. And uh, some archaeologists say, well, that's because ownership and property was coming into the general field, into the meme. I mean, yeah, but why make women property? So men own their children, the young adolescents, they own women, and the most important thing about owning women is that she had to be chaste. Um, chaste. Because man's honor was de dependent on a woman's behavior. So if she had sex, uh, he was dishonored. There was no honor for women. Things had changed, so honor became something that men had, and women who were dishonored. I mean, that was their only thing. Bravery was measured by going to war and wearing armor and um, killing a lot of other men, not bravery in the pregnancy of delivering a beautiful baby, which had been for thousands of years. For every, from Spain to Indonesia, it was clear that for thousands of years, agriculture brought forth an appreciation of the female. And it was related to birth, undoubtedly. Um, seeing the, the seed grow and give fruition. And that was seen as a power for women. So it gave them um, a power in, in the society. They weren't confined to the home. They were allowed in the public forum. That changed. They got chewed back, that changed for, for certain reasons. I mean, for a number of reasons over maybe a thousand, a thousand, two thousand years, we got really oppressed. 
I don't know how we let it happen. I don't know how our fathers let it happen. I don't know um, what made it happen. But by the time we get to the Adam and Eve myth, I mean, Eve, it's based on something, Inanna, a story of Inanna where she's under a tree and a snake comes and creates a nest in the tree and uh, whispers wisdom to her. The snake was the goddess emblem of uh, wisdom and knowledge. So that's why you see statues with uh, snakes wrapped around arms of uh, some goddesses. And the snake was a power animal, not the only one. Others were too, but it was. So it isn't an Adam and Eve, but it is the only thing there that tells the truth. I mean, the snake comes and uh, first of all, Adam's the first human. I mean, there was no mother. Adam uh, is created from a distant father god, no female in the story at all. Most previous myths, maybe all of them, had at least a male-female god who gave birth. But by the time we're into the, uh, the Hebrews and the Old Testament, there's no more female giving birth. Life comes from the males, and the Greeks really emphasize that even more. But so, <laughs> so Adam can't quite manage the animals, and or he's lonely, or whatever story you read, and asks God for a, a mate. And so they take a rib from him and, excuse me, and make Eve. Well, she's definitely a kind of secondary character. She also doesn't come out of a woman. But, the, but it's a funny story, right? So the, the snake comes to her and says, if you eat that apple, you will know the difference between good and bad. You will gain knowledge. You will become wise. That's the story. So she goes and eats the apple, which God had said the only thing you can't do in this garden is eat that apple. <laughs> and his word is it, right? So she takes a bite of the apple. That's it. And that's it for thousands of years afterwards. God punishes Adam and Eve and says that Adam will work by the sweat of his brow, like plowing, and all the women that follow Eve will bear children in pain and suffering. Um, in about 500 AD, just to show how this evolved, Justinian, the uh, Pope, said that all the women have to suffer for the sin of Eve. And, and that became part of the Christian tradition, that women suffered and carried the sin of Eve. So from Inanna from, to that, has been the story, I mean, the mythic story of what happened to women. And it's, it's showing up in other places as well. The Ten Commandments uh, are one of the most strange events in religious history. Most religions begin with a, a story about a person or an animal, and they make an idol. Well, we call them idols. They make a statue. <laughs> They make a statue or do a drawing, and that's where they, they do their worship, their circle dances, <laughs> whatever they do, right? So they begin to relate to a, uh, a person or animal spirits, and they take that into their lives. So the Hebrews story is that 
Moses goes to talk to God, who has no image at all, and God gives him the Ten Commandments. Now, the Hebrews can't read. It's possible those were the first alphabetic. The Hebrew writing was, was one of the first, not the Phoenician. But he, he brings down the tablets, and the first three commandments say what no other God has ever said. I am God. I am the Lord thy God. You shall have no other gods but me. This is not how humans developed spiritually. This is a real break um, in human consciousness. I'm God. And the second one is um, you will have no graven images before me. And that's all about the goddess religions, all the religions that have statues. I mean, we found, what, three or four hundred statues of, of females in this area. Um, so get rid of them. They went to war over these statues. The Israel fought the Canaanites over their statues. That was really what this one book I have over there, and what I will get to at some point, was the uh, writing versus the image. The image is right brain. It's an all-at-once experience. And different kind of stories come out of that than come out of uh, the written word. The written word is like this. And then you get to the end and you've got the meaning. So the Hebrew and then Israel religion in the Old Testament is based on words overcoming images. If you read the chapters in it and the stories, they're not all that, but a, but a number of them are about um, prophets going to fight with um, foreign people and get rid of their images. It's very strange. Uh, it is. I mean, I thought it was very strange. And, um, you know, then you cannot take my name in vain. Okay, you can't talk about God unless you're really worshiping him. I mean, so this God is far away. He's not, I mean, he dips into human affairs, but then he's, he's pretty far away. He's all male, and everything after him, what comes after the Ten Commandments is about what to do about one quarter of them are the stories are about how women should be treated and, and behaved. The Hammurabi Code is the same. A large part of it, one third to one half, is about how to uh, deal with women um, who have sex, who don't clean your house, who don't who talk back. This is not the Old Testament. This is the Hammurabi Code. So this was around the same time. So this is what went on for a long time for our great-great-grandmothers. This affected our brains. This affected everybody's brains. So we are not, we can't go back. I mean, that gate is closed for men and, and women. We, we really have to go forward, and I, it sounds, we have to develop new neural pathways. And, you know, in the 60s and 70s, a lot of us were doing, we were dancing in circles. We, uh, my generation had altars, little altars, you know, for different stuff. My daughter made a little altar. Um, we turned back to the goddess. Those of us more like me, who were more left-brained to begin with, 
I thought it was more important to change the political system or the or the corporate system. So I was an activist in uh, in that kind of work, but a lot of other women didn't want to do that. And so a good part of the women's movement went to trying to refine that part of a goddess in ourselves. I thought it was new age and whoopee. And uh, now that I've done this study, I think it was a sincere reaching out that's in us for something for us. Uh, I don't know what that'll look like in 20 years or 10 years or 40 years, but we need to do something. And we need to encourage our young women to do something that develops the right brain because corporations are, do not like it. Those of us who got into higher corporate, you know, they let our bodies in, but not our mind. I mean, I had to think, and I do, well, I think like a man. I think very linearly, I make outlines, I, you know, uh, but we have so much intuition in which we think like a whole. When we see the larger whole, we feel it. And you can't express that easily in a corporate setting and have a trust. So our work isn't just to get ahead in the male institutions. And that's where I put my energy right now. You know, let's get women in and but uh, we have this whole other aspect of the work. And if you don't know what to do, begin with a circle of women. Invite six or eight women to your house or four. I mean, that's that's my experience with everything when I want to get something moving, is bring a circle of women together. Talk about these issues, get a book, read some of the stuff, you know, and say, how do we bring this back? So that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something. I certainly have. Uh, if you'd like to leave a comment, you can do that on my website at susancoleman.global, or you can send me an email at susan at susancoleman.global. If you haven't subscribed to our blog, please do so on the website, susancoleman.global. So stay tuned for the final episode in the Rabia series, which hopefully I'll get to you sooner than later and uh, stay creative, stay positive and stay in touch.